the National Archives podcast series, Transportation to Australia, presented by Roger Kershaw. Thank you, Jill. I hope you can all hear me. If not, just let me know. I've got about, as you'll see from your handout, there's about 50 or 55 slides here, so it's going to be a relatively quick gallop through records we've got, but also some records held elsewhere relating to transportation to Australia. And throughout the talk, I'm going to use a case study of someone called John Jobson, who was transported to Australia in 1820. And you'll see him cropping up in some of the records that I've put up on the screen. John Jobson, interestingly enough, was the great-great-great-great-grandfather of a member of the staff at the National Archives, someone called Adrian Jobson, who's one of our medieval specialists. So it's thanks to Adrian that we can use him as, as a guide to the records that we hold here. And really today is about introducing the subject of transportation to Australia to you if, if you're not particularly familiar with it. I mean, it's very much a kind of like beginner's intermediate kind of lecture on the subject. As I say, I can't really do the whole subject justice in an hour, so you might feel that I, I go over things a little bit too quickly. But hopefully we'll have some opportunity for questions at the end, which I'm very happy to take. So what I'm going to cover today are records relating to trials, uh, particularly those that are available at the National Archives. The National Archives holds the Courts of Assize records and those of the Central Criminal Court, also known as the Old Bailey Sessions. Quarter session records are kept locally at county record offices, and we'll come back to the differences in a little bit detail. We're also going to look at pardons, appeals and petitions, so when a death sentence is commuted to a sentence of penal servitude or transportation. And we're going to look at transportation lists themselves, which are records where prisoners are awaiting transportation to Australia, such as registers, but also ships records, which will include surgeons' health reports as well. There are a number of research guides, which hopefully you've, uh, you've got on your seats today. There's three in particular that you can pick up on site or download freely from our web. One's called Transportation to Australia, 1787 to 1868. The other one is Tracing 19th Century Criminals in the National Archives. And the third one is looking in more detail at Courts of Assize Records, Tracing Trials of Criminals. You can take it further. There are three books that cover the subject in some detail. One that was published uh, in February this year was one I wrote called Migration Records, a Guide for Family Historians. And then... Two or three years ago, I wrote with a colleague, Mark Pearsall, a smaller guide called Family History on the Move. Probably the best uh, TNA publication is one called Bound for Botany Bay, British Convict Voyages to Australia, written by Alan Brook and David Brandon. So if you really wanted uh, the National Archives book on the subject, this is the one to get. So let's look in a bit more detail at trial records. As I say, uh, the National Archives hold records of the courts of assizes, and assize courts were where the more serious capital offences were heard. Prisoners were tried at assize courts, which were held twice a year in county towns by visiting judges. And the records are preserved, as are the assize courts equivalent of London and Middlesex. And these are known as the Central Criminal Court records, or more commonly known as Old Bailey records. Quarter session records, on the other hand, are held locally at county archives, and these sessions were held four times a year for less serious offences, but some still serious enough to result in a sentence of transportation. 
So the court records may well be here at the National Archives or they may well be at county record offices. But some of the, some of the sources that I'll be showing you later on can actually identify where the person was tried. So, so there's lots of clues in the records that we hold. Just to give you a bit of background for those of you who don't know, it's estimated that over 162,000 British and Irish convicts were transported to Australia between 1787 and 1868. And such a massive movement involved hundreds of ships and thousands and thousands of associated groups of individuals, such as magistrates, judges, private contractors and agents who were responsible for safely transporting the men to Australia and women, merchant seamen and officers, surgeons on board ships, and of course the convicts themselves. So why did they transport to Australia? Well, it was, it was simply because of the defeat of the British in the American War of Independence in 1776. It resulted in America no longer being a destination for transportation. Transportation itself had really been, as a policy, up and running from 1618 right through to 1776, when some 50,000 men, women and children had been dispatched to America. So why was there a policy of transportation? It was really the result of the Transportation Act of 1718, which allowed the courts to sentence non-capital offences, i.e. those who'd claim, who could claim benefit of clergy, to seven years transportation, or 14 years for capital felons. And benefits of clergy gave clergy the privilege of being tried in ecclesiastical courts and not civil courts. And ecclesiastical courts could not impose a death penalty. And over the years, the practice developed that prisoners charged with a felony could plead benefit of clergy if he or she could prove that he, like a clergyman, could read. And the Act made it very clear that transportation was in fact a deterrent to crime because it, it was quite difficult for someone to return back home once they were transported. And it was also an effective means of, of supplying a colony with a labour force, so, so there's an economic reason behind it as well. So I mentioned John Jobson before. This is the first time we'll see John Jobson. You should see his name just here, further down the screen, where it says John Jobson, stealing goods. And that's why and he was, he was uh, convicted. This record is from the Court of Assize. I mean, specifically, it's Assize 11 stroke 1. And it's a Crown Minute book from 1820 for the Midland Circuit. So it will include the county of Warwickshire which is where John Jobson was born and committed his crime. He stole goods and he was sentenced for transportation for seven years. And these records are not available online. Currently, you need to research them among the original sources held here. Very rarely do you get a name index, so I couldn't just type in John Jobson and this would come up. This particular record is arranged by county or district, so it'll be under Warwickshire or Midland Circuit, and it will say minute books for 1820. And by ordering up this document, you then wade through it until you found the guilty charge for John Jobson. Records of Central Criminal Court or Earl Bailey, there's, there's been much more effort there to put them online, and there is a dedicated site called oldbaileyonline.org. So for assize records, in many cases, as I say, you, you, you're searching by the year and by the county or circuit. And there's a number of different records in the size records. This is a Crown Minute Book, but there's also records of depositions, indictment, 
jail books, and they all tell you different things. What they don't tend to do is give you a transcript of the court proceedings. Those records simply haven't survived for court of assize records. You need to rely on local newspapers, which you can often find in county archives or at the British Newspaper Library in Collindale. But they do tell you things like the, the charge, the sentence, sometimes a list of jurors, and here a list of the 12 jurors who were present on the case of John Jobson. A little bit more information about John Jobson. He was born in Birmingham in the early years of the 19th century. And his first appearance in the records is this one when he was 15 years old. And in the record, which is dated the 27th of March, 1820, he was brought before Mr Justice Best at Warwickshire Assizes on charges of theft, specifically a pair of pistols to the value of £15. His plea was not guilty, but he was found guilty. And unfortunately for this case, as I say, that there are no surviving indictments or depositions, so you can't get any further for this particular case than the information you've got here. As I mentioned before, if you had an ancestor who had tried in the Old Bailey or the Central Criminal Court, this is the website you need to go to, which is www.oldbaileyonline.org. And you can search cases between 1674 and 1913 uh, by just going through the search pages. The records are held here, but you, you, what you'll find is that they've been indexed you know, by, by individual, uh, and that site's been up and running for a few years now. Okay, so once sentence has been passed, the convict would be returned to the jail where he or she was awaiting trial, and there they would await transportation, which could take quite a while, particularly uh, in the initial early days of the transportation to Australia. And these are known as criminal registers. They're arranged by county, and there are two series. One is HO27, which is the series for England and Wales between 1805 and 1892. And there's a series HO26, which is specifically for prisoners in the London and Middlesex area. And as you see, they're arranged by county and by year, or chronologically. And you get their names, you get where they were tried, the month and the year. So then you can go to the assize records if you didn't know that. It gives you the crimes that they were convicted of and their sentence. So you've got a couple of here who were sentenced to 14 years or 7 years transportation. Others who were just imprisoned, so penal servitude in, the, in, the, in, in Britain. <coughs> Unfortunately, these records haven't been indexed, so you can't just type in the name of someone. Uh, there has been some attempt to index them, and we've, we've got some supplementary finding aids, particularly for the London ones, in our open reading room. But by and large, you really need to know where they were sentenced, which county, and roughly what year, and then start working your way through, through the books. John Jobson, for interest, awaited uh, at Warwick Prison, awaiting sentence. But like many who had pleaded not guilty, he submitted a petition for mercy, appealing for the revocation or reduction in his sentence. And when we talk about appeals, this is a typical one. This is a judge's report, HO 47 stroke 21. And it's a typical petition to reduce a sentence of death to that of penal servitude, which would have included transportation. As a result of a uh, long-going cataloguing project, all of these records in HO 47 between the years 1784 and 1830 are searchable by name of convict and by, by crime and a lot of detail about the individual. So it's, so it's worth checking if you think you have an ancestor who would have appealed against the sentence that was passed down. 
Within the same series, you can get reports on criminals. This is, this is within the same series. It's HO 47, piece 52, and it's from the year 1813. And it's a return of women convicts in 1813 in Newgate Prison awaiting transportation, together with their individual pleas of mercy, which would have gone before the judges, who in, in most cases would have ignored them. This is a different series. This is HO 6. Judges and Recorders Returns. And in this particular return, royal mercy had been granted. So these people were sentenced to death, but their sentences were commuted to transportation. So they would have probably been sentenced to 14 years transportation. This particular series, you can't search by name. You just work, work through the returns for a given year. And there, in the same document, is just more details of the individuals who were granted mercy. These are individuals who were tried in Warwick at the Warwick Assizes, and there's the names of those people, and this is the decision that was made. So, awaiting transport. Prison hulks were essentially floating prisons on the banks of the Thames, and they were originally intended as a very short-term method of imprisonment when Britain was at war in America during the American War of Independence in 1776. But as the war prolonged and Britain was defeated, it was clear that America couldn't be used as a destiny for transportees. And all of a sudden, the number of hulks increased, and particularly the population on the hulks, from 500 men in 1779 to nearly 2,000 in 1783. So they were at a point of bursting in 1787 when the first fleet began its voyage for Botany Bay. So you'll find an awful lot of people on Hulk registers between 1776 and 1787, and even beyond that, because there was still a period of waiting before, before ships could go to Australia. Interestingly enough, only men were kept on Hulks. You won't find any female convicts. One of the reasons for that is that Hulks were, they were actually known as hell on water. This is a illustrate, this is a cartoon or drawing from the illustrated London News from 1846. And they were very dark, they were quite brutal, demoralising. They were a place of confinement and they were filthy and increasingly they were overcrowded. And many were based very close to each other on the south bank of the Thames at Woolwich and Deptford. And as I said before, they were established as a temporary expedient by an act in 1776, but they actually continued in existence, you know, until the sort of like mid part of the 19th century. John Jobson languished for two years on the Hulk, the Bellerophon, and remember he, he was sentenced in uh, 1820, and he actually was on this Hulk between 1820 and 1822, before embarking on the convict ship, the Guildford, on the 29th of March, 1822. So he had about 18 or 19 months on, on, on the Hulk. And he also escaped the term child convict. A, a child convict, or child transportee, was a child who, whose sentence began before the age of 16. But by the time he set sail for Australia, he was actually 18. And we've got quite a number of records relating to Hulks. Not many have been indexed by name of convict, and normally they're arranged quarterly, so you get four to a year, and 
they're arranged by the name of the, uh, the actual Hulk. This is actually the Leviathan, which is a Hulk in the series HO8 stroke 18. So HO8 is the series of records you need to consult if you're searching for people on board prison hulks. And as I say, they were particularly overcrowded leading up to 1787 when the first fleet set sail. And of course there was this period between 1776 and 87 where there was lots of discussion about where the next uh, penal colony should be. And West Africa was, was considered, but actually the decision of Australia was taken in and around 1785-86. This is HO9, by the way, this is an index. So some of these books or these records come with indexes at the back. So even though I say they're not indexed on the catalogue, once you call up a document, there will be an index at the back of the book which will then take you to an individual convict. So, so it's not quite as bad as it might seem if you don't have a particular month or year. Yeah, this is, this is the document which effectively established New South Wales as a penal colony and its correspondence, New South Wales original correspondence with the Governor of New South Wales and the, and the record is CO201-2, CO standing for Colonial Office. And this document effectively establishes New South Wales and it states clearly that there is a benefit to New South Wales in the sense that uh, you know, there's going to be labour in, in the colony and there'll be an economic uh, advantage and, and benefit as a result of that. So there's benefits both to the convicts and to the state. So the records of transportation start from this point. This record is from a series HO10 which is a Home Office series recording settlers and convicts to New South Wales and Tasmania from 1787 right through to 1859. And there are essentially lists of male and female convicts indicating their sentences, if they were, if they were convicts, their employment and their settlement in the country. And it also provides information of land and cattle that was acquired by them and any other information such as lists of pardons granted and convicts embarked for and arriving in New South Wales. And this is part of the first fleet. This is HMS Supply and Sirius. The Sirius was the first fleet's flagship, while the Supply was its smallest vessel. And the Sirius reached Botany Bay, we think, on the 20th of January, 1788. And in total, there were a fleet of 11 ships that left Portsmouth on the 13th of May, 1787. So it took about eight months for them to arrive, all of them, all 11, between the 18th and 20th in 1788. And it's amazingly successful because they're under the command of Captain Philip and of, on board there were some 750 convicts, mostly men. There were, of, of them, about 200 were women. And they were guarded by nearly 200 marines and officers. And in total, there are around about 1,200 people, of which only 24 did not survive the eight-month journey, which was something like 0.02% of all on board. And this was despite the extreme heat and associated diseases. It wasn't always successful, though. The, the second fleet, two years later, was quite famous for the, the number of deaths on board uh, and also the attempts of mutiny as well and, and all sorts. But the, the first fleet was uh, incredibly successful. One of the more famous or popular series of records we have are 
lists of convicts transported. This is HO11 stroke 5. And all of these records can now be searched and downloaded by subscribing to ancestry.com.au. And you can also search these using the, the library in Victoria. So what does it do? It tends to give you the names of, of, of the convicts who were being transported, uh, where they were convicted, and when they were convicted, and their conviction dates. Yeah, the State Library of, of Queensland actually has its own website where you can freely search for details and transcriptions of, of anyone who appears. And all of these, these records going from 1787 through to the 1860s. And that's, if you haven't seen it, the front page of the, uh, the, Queen, the State Library Queensland site, which is www.slq.qld.gov.au. And John Jobson can be found on these. Remember, John Jobson set sail on the Guildford in 1822, having spent two years in the prison hulk called the Leviathan. Remember, he was found guilty in Warwickshire assizes of stealing two pistols. Well, he set board on the Guildford on the 7th of April, 1822, bound for Port Jackson under the captaincy of Magnus Johnson. And it was the fifth voyage of the Guildford to New South Wales. And it stopped just the once on the way. And the passage lasted 99 days, which is incredibly quick, and it was one of the fastest made by a convict ship. And we can see John Jobson, I think, on the next page, second from the bottom. And living conditions had improved since the second fleet sailed, especially from about 1815, because from 1815, each convict ship carried a naval surgeon on board, whose, ro whose role it was to supervise the general health of the transportees and crew throughout the passage. Because remember, on each of these convicts' head there was a price, and, the, and the, the people who were arranging their transport was paid considerable fees to actually safely get them across to Australia. So it was in their interest to make sure that they were well fed and looked after as, as best as they could be. So who were actually transported? Some, you can summarise them into four categories. There are rural convicts, so essentially those from a farming background, political prisoners or exiles, such as 19th century rioters, significantly the swing rioters of 1830 and those involved in the Chartist movements of the 1830s and 40s. There were female convicts. I mean, out of the 162,000, it's estimated that 26,000 were women, so it was probably about a sixth of of all those who were transported. But there are also child convicts, of which it was estimated that 90% were boys, 10% girls. And child, as I said, was anyone below the age of 16. And between 15,000 and 20,000 children were believed to have been transported between 1787 and the 1868. Now, John Jobson, as we heard before, was a rural convict. He was believed he was from a farming background in rural Warwickshire. And of the 172,000 people transported, 70% were believed to be English, 25% Irish, 5% Scottish, and less than 1% were Welsh. And they'd all either go to New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land, which then became Tasmania. Western Australia was the destination for the vast majority of Irish Irish convicts. And most Irish convicts were rural. 
Their crimes would range from disturbances to stealing cattle. And prisoners from rural areas fell foul of the game's laws, which made the killing and poaching of game a serious offence. And poachers were often seen as heroes, especially between 1750 and 1830, when tensions between the landowners and ordinary people ran very high. And the availability of transportation led to a significant reduction on the number of executions in, in Britain. Numbers of people sent to Australia increased between 1811 and 1830. And the peak years were seen to be the 1830s, when over 43,000 men and 7,000 women were transported. And this is well over three quarters of all those convicts who were transported after 1830. But let's look at some of these other groups. This is, is, is just a cartoon of 1792 which offers a satirical depiction of convicts leaving their loved ones before embarking for Botany Bay. And whatever the reason for transportation, there was always the associated tra uh, trauma. The domestic impact of transportation on families and communities was felt in villages and towns throughout the country. And there are thousands and thousands of letters in the National Archive addressed to the Home Secretary appealing to him to allow wives and children of convicts to go to Australia with them on a free passage. And most of these letters were, were unanswered or left, left unheard. Here's a, uh, one such letter. It's an extract from several thousand similar moving letters received by the Home Office during the convict years. And this particular example from a prisoner who's sentenced to transportation for life begs that his wife be allowed to accompany him. And as I say, such letters would have probably gone unanswered. Only years later, when a convict received what was known as a ticket of leave, and we'll come back to that in a moment, could he or she legitimately make an application for one or more members of the family to join him or her. And, and it was more likely to happen then. Here's another uh, cartoon. This is in the Illustrated London News. This is of 1849. It's just, I guess, typical scenes of... A, an emigrant ship and then the boat, rowing boat uh, to, to New South Wales. This document here is a registration or part of a registration for applications for passages to the colonies for colonies families and this dates between 1848 and 1873 because convicts who gained their ticket of leave as I said could then invite families to join them in Australia and this is a, a register of, of such passages being, being agreed and carried out by the colonial office. Unfortunately, some, but by then, you know, if we're talking 14 years, because of the, the death rate, or the, the, the life expectancy rate was much lower than it is now, relatives were often too ill or too poor to actually travel, or had rebuilt their own lives in the years of absence. But nevertheless, obviously some families we, were reunited, as we can see in this particular document here. Okay, I talked about the uh, groups of people who were transported. We talked about rural transportees. Uh, there's also political prisoners as well. And this is a poster offering the reward for information about the swing letters. It's dated 1830. It's part of the correspondence for the Home Office uh, in the series HO52. Swing riots were a response to low wages and poor, and poor conditions, particularly in the southwest and east of England in 1830. And tactics such as rick burning and cattle maiming evoked a ferocious response from the authorities. 
Political prisoners such as swing rioters accounted for only 2% of all those who were transported, but they were nonetheless very significant because their convictions had a traumatic effect on the entire, entire community. And most of these men, of course, were, they weren't hardened criminals, they were, they were educated, educated men. So they were very different from, from who you'd expect to be tran transported. And they were really convicted for protesting against the loss of their livelihoods caused by changes in rural work, such as the introduction of new agricultural machinery. And the swing riots of 1830 to 31 were an agricultural phenomenon. There are over a thousand separate incidents of machine breaking, arson attacks and other disturbances in counties across the south, the west and the east of England. The riots were as a result of the decline in prices of agricultural produce, lower wages and the introduction of the threshing machine and the influx of cheap Irish labour. And as a consequence, 2,000 were arrested, of which 19 are executed and over 500 transported. 132 of which were transported on the convict ship, the Eleanor, which sailed from Portsmouth to New South Wales in 1831 and 32. And around about the same time you had the Chartist movement. So this is from the series HO40. It's still a correspondence relating to disturbances. And this is a notice of a Chartist meeting being held at Carlisle on the 21st of May 1839. And Chartists were the largest working-class political movement of the 19th century, and their public meetings alarmed the authorities. Many Chartists were transported for their activities. Essentially, Chartists demanded the radical realignment of political power, including a secret battle ballot and an extension of the vote to all males. And there were three core years of protest, 1839, 1842 and 1848. In 1839, an armed Chartist uprising took place in Newport, resulting in the deaths of 22 people. The intention was to seize the town and then secure the release of Henry Vincent, who was a leading Chartist speaker. But the plan failed and three were sentenced to death, their sentences commuted to transportation after large-scale protests. And the riots in Newport were typical of riots in a number of places, including Birmingham. And of course, women were transported as well. As I said before, we think around about 26,000 women were transported to Australia. And this is an illustration of female prisoners in Newgate Prison. And most would have come from the London and Metro, uh, Middlesex hotspots of soaring urban crown, uh, crime. And in this particular image, they appear degenerate and unruly, a point often made by the ship's officer who transported, as I say, over 26,000 of them between 1787 and 1868. As I said, uh, women would not be awaiting transportation on prison hulks. They'd, they'd typically be in prisons such as Newgate. The earliest fe female convicts arrived on the Lady Juliana in 1790. There's been quite a lot written about that. It was also known as the floating brothel. But in fact, less than 20% of women transported were known to have practiced prostitution. The majority were convicted for larceny or crimes against poverty. And the women would bring useful skills from generally low-paid employment, ranging from servants and housemaids to cooks, weavers, nurses, bootmakers and jewellers. And most were often young in the 21 to 25-year range of childbearing age and ideal to contribute to a future labour force. And the final category that I included on the slide before was children. This is a drawing of street 
urchins practicing their skills in London from Dickens, the Dickens novel Oliver Twist. Uh, this is from the famous uh, cartoonist uh, Cruikshank. And there were many artful dodgers who were caught, convicted and sent to Australia. And for some, transportation was a chance for a new life, if, if not better life, than, than where they'd come from. Child transportation existed as early as the first fleet when a 13-year-old girl called Elizabeth Hayward was transported for stealing a linen dress. And large numbers of child convicts were placed on a child hulk, specially designed to accommodate children in the 1830s and 40s. And many of these children would end up being transported to New South Wales or a boys' penal colony in Point Pure on Van Diemen's land, which became Tasmania. And over 200 were brought on one journey by the convict ship, the Elphinstone, in 1842. And children, as I say, were classed of being anyone under the age of 16. Uh, but very few child convicts were under the age of 10. So why were children transported? Well, Victorian society did not look kindly down on children. Children were abandoned in the growing industrial age. There was, there was, there was a surplus of, of labour for jobs that were there, and uh, there was high mortality rates for parents. And there was no kind of like welfare for children, really, until the, the mid and latter part of the 19th centuries, where you had children's societies and people like Dr. Bernardo's and anime, you know, pioneers of... Uh, of, of, of child welfare. But until then, I'm afraid, uh, this, this explains why so many children got involved in, in child crime. Uh, I said Elphinstone was this ship that took all these children to Van Diemen's Land in 1842. This is a list of some of those children on board. As you see on this particular page, they range from 13 years old through to uh, 16. And you get exactly the same information you'd expect to get from the transportation registers we saw early, so an indication of what their crime was, where and when they were convicted, what the sentence was, whether they could read or write, and then there's a report from the jailer. This is in the a series of records by Privy Council, so it's PC1, but unfortunately there's no index by name. It's a case of going through the uh, particular year, if you happen to know the, uh, the ship that the convict was on board. I don't know whether many of you have been to the Port Arthur Heritage Centre. It's somewhere I managed to go to a couple of years ago. It's a fascinating place where there's, there's obviously it's now a huge heritage centre and you know, a lot of the adults were, were uh, kept at uh, Port Arthur, but just around the coast, or very close by to Port Arthur, was, was the child colony known as Point Pure, which closed in 1849, but it was surrounded by water and a large shark population. And this, this was the whole of, of Port Arthur, prisoners were virtually sealed off from the rest of the world but Point Pure was, was part of that and it closed in 1849 having been a juvenile colony for 800 boys and the boys who were on the vessel we just saw before called the Elphinstone were, were destined for Point Pure. It was situated just across from Port Arthur. It survived for 15 years and in that time admitted as I said around about 800 boys wasn't the only place to confine young offenders. There were also barracks, Carter's Barracks in Sydney accommodated child convicts between 1820 and 1835, and the Swan River Colony in Western Australia between 1842 and 1849, but the biggest one was Point Pure. This is an interesting series of records. It's, it's a, uh, 
questionnaire of sorts, a series of questions for one John Edwards, who was imprisoned in 1836 for stealing money from a shop. And the home office, it's the Home Office record, it's HO73. It's a report from a commission, I think, to try and understand uh, crime and how people reoffend or don't reoffend. And this guy called John Edwards is, is answering questions to show his family backgrounds and social conditions that, that ultimately led many boys into early delinquency and crime. So the voyage over, as I said, the voyage could be as short as 88 days. Uh, John Johnson was on a voyage that lasted 99 days, but the record, they think, was 88 days towards the end of the transportation in the mid-1850s. But they could last up to seven months, and that was, that was the period of time it would take to reach Australia, certainly in the 1780s and 90s when, when uh, transportation started. So what records do we have on the voyage over? Well, we have surgeons' reports, and we'll come back to those in a moment. There are records of convicts where they were keeping orders, so there are punishment books. There are medical records indicating how people sadly would die on, on, on board. And there are records of particular diseases such as scurvy. So we can just look at some of these fairly quickly. This is a, uh, a surgeon's report. And you'll find surgeon's report by and large in the series of records ADM 101 because they're actually Royal Naval records. And this is the medical journal of the convict ship called the Ocean, which sailed in 1823. And in it, the surgeon superintendent describes a case of attempted mutiny, because you would get mutiny on, on a lot of these journeys that lasted several months. And in addition to completing medical journals, these men were expected to document unusual and untoward cases in, involving disciplinary measures. So they're a fantastic resource. Uh, you, know, you see the title Medical Journal, so you assume that it's purely about uh, medicine, but it actually it's, it's, it's more about keeping order obviously uh, medicine but also disciplinary measures. At the moment the, uh, the records are arranged by name of ship but there's a uh, joint project with the Wellcome Institute, Wellcome Trust, where we're actually indexing them by name of convict who was seen and by the names of the, uh, the surgeons themselves and the diseases that were found. This is the journal for the convict ship called the Guildford, 1822. Uh, and as we know, this is the ship that uh, John Jobson was transported on. And it was at, from 1815 that each convict ship carried a naval surgeon. So it's from 1815 that you're more likely to use this source. And as we know, John was transported for stealing two pistols. And the Guildford surgeon was a Dr James Mitchell who recorded in his log details of all those required his service. And on the 7th of July, the log notes that John Jobson had reported to sickbay. Diagnosed with a serious face infection, he was put on a, a low diet and given a treatment involving an ammonia compound. After three days, he was well enough to be discharged. And as I say, hopefully by May 2010, we'll have fully indexed these, these records on our catalogue so you can then, for the first time, search across by name of convict to see whether you know, your particular ancestor or whoever you're researching was seen by a naval surgeon. As I say, naval surgeons were also responsible for recording punishments. So here we have a punishment register or list for the various crimes and punishments which were meted out to offending convicts during the voyage. And that's a front cover of the uh, journal of a medical journal. This is for the convict ship, the Barossa, 
between 1841 and 1842. And funnily enough, one wouldn't think this, but from the introduction of uh, having a ship superintendent sh surgeon in 1815, the death rate among convicts was far lower than those among free emigrating law-abiding citizens, which, which seems slightly odd, but it was certainly true. And this particular journal is quite a useful one to use. This is a, uh, a sick book of the men who were treated on the Barossa in 1842. And you can see the diseases typical of their time included diarrhoea, constipation, catarrh, phlegm, rheumatism and dyspepsia. Now this is a different medical journal. This is for the ships, the Isabella and Java, dated 1833. Depending on the surgeons, some accounts are very detailed, and in total there are well over 800 journals. But unfortunately some are missing, as not all surgeons chose to keep one, so it's a little bit of potluck. It's estimated that about 25% of all convicts saw a surgeon on each voyage. And obviously that fluctuated depending on the, uh, the diseases at the time. This is a very early sketch of the disease scurvy. And within this document, which is the medical journal for the convict ship, the Barossa, there's an essay on scurvy with watercolour illustrations of its effects, such as this one here by a Dr Mahon. And scurvy was obviously a dangerous disease for those at sea for long periods and was finally brought under control by the use of lemons and other citrus fruits. Because essentially scurvy is a lack of vitamin C and it killed thousands each year both at home and at sea. Deaths at sea from scurvy exceeded all deaths from shipwrecks, other diseases and battles combined. It's estimated that scurvy killed over one million people between 1600 and 1800. So the final section is really the end of the sentence. So what happened when somebody completed their seven years or 14 years transportation? Well there's what's known as a ticket of leave passport, a certificate of freedom and then we'll, we'll kind of like finish off by trying to appreciate why the policy of transportation ended when it did in the 1860s. This is a, a Colonial Office series record CO280 and it's a return, return of convicts who offended at, at Lawciston and Hobart in Van Diemen's Land and the offences listed would appear to be fairly minor although one convict's retribution resulted in a one-year extension to her sentence. But generally speaking, convicts wanted to complete their sentences and establish themselves as landholders, tradesmen and free settlers. And one exceptional case was Richard Dry, convicted in Dublin in 1787 for political activity and transported to Van Diemen's Land. In 1818 he was given a grant of 500 acres and by 1827 he was working 12,000 acres with 400 cattle and 7,000 sheep. So obviously there are some convicts who, who ended up doing extremely well in their own right. And this is the ticket of leave passport for the convict Thomas Griffith, issued 13th of May 1845. Ticket of leave passports were granted for, before the sentences had expired, but they required the convicts to seek employment and to report regularly to the local magistrates. So it's kind of a series of parole really. Uh, it was intended to limit government expenditure by reducing what was paid out to feed and house convicts engaged in public work. And it enabled prisoners, after satisfactorily serving a minimum part of their sentence, to make a living on their own under this parole system. None of these records are held by the National Archives, by the way. They're all held at archives in Australia. 
And this is a register, again, this is held at the New South Wales State Archives, but it's a register showing the granting to John Jobson of his Certificate of Freedom. But you see there's a physical description of him, presumably, if he were to re-offend, and it tells you about where he was convicted when he arrived. So why did transportation end? This is a uh, caption or cartoon from Punch magazine in 1864, and it shows the growing resentment by free settlers and many ex-convicts about the continuing dispatch of British convicts to exile in Australia. To encourage a growing desire and supply of free settlers, free inhabitants were required to pay much of the cost of managing convicts because there was a long-term economic benefit of, of transportation. And also, with the discovery... So this, 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 this brought some uh, resentment from, from obviously the local population. And with the discovery of gold in 1851, the supply of free immigrants, people really wanting to go to Australia, was far outstripping the demand. And some asked the question, why would you send convicts to a land of gold? And at home, uh, in Britain, also there was an increasing view that transportation was actually a very cruel method of confinement, and it, it was increasingly becoming an ineffective system. And very few people were transported from the mid-1850s onwards, and West Australia and Van Diemen's and New South Wales we would stop at different times, but the last ship was, was noted to be 1868. So what happened to John Jobson, just to finish off with? Well, John Jobson became a free man at the age of 22, at a time when New South Wales was enjoying a period of growth. Land was cheap and labour was scarce, and by the time of the 1828 New South Wales census, uh, which we have here, he was living in Sutton Forest working as a bullock driver for a John Edwards. Within a few years, he had settled in, I think it's Bungonia, about 77 miles southwest of Sydney. And he married a young woman named Eliza Weeks, who had arrived in Australia in 1832 as an assisted free passenger, free, free immigrant. And they married in 1835 and had 13 children, the last being born in 1853. And that's not John Jobson, that's one of his sons. It's actually his second son, a William Jobson. So, the second son of John and Eliza. And that is the grave of John Jobson, who died in 1880 at the age of 73. And he was buried in, is it Goulburn? Which I guess is in New South Wales. And that's the cemetery that my colleague visited two or three years ago just to put the final touches to the story of John Jobson. And he also picked up John Jobson's death certificate, which we see here. Now, how John viewed his convict experiences is not known, but it's clear that he didn't re-offend, and he lived as a law-abiding citizen until his death in 1880. Interestingly, though not necessarily surprising, is that the name of his father is recorded as unknown on the death certificate. I mean, presumably, you know, nobody in his life would know what his father's name was because he left Britain at the age of 18. Unfortunately, some of his children, however, did turn to crime. This is a picture of Berrimer Courthouse and Berrimer Jail. And this is Lansdowne Park Farm near Goulburn. Charles and Henry Jobson, two of his children, were both imprisoned for horse stealing in 1866 and 1867. Of his other sons, John became a bush ranger, being sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. And in September 1863, Berima Jail, he broke through the walls of his cell and remained at large until 1864. But that uh, really concludes my talks. Thank you.
This event was recorded live on the 21st of July, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.